hey, welcome everybody to this panel presentation. Let's say our creed together. And by the way, I botched the creed last time by one word, a crucial word, which we can talk about. I, um, <laughs> I, believe, in, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. I said his son, and we all repeated that, but it's actually his only son, our Lord. So there's, there's a marker there of the distinctiveness of Jesus' status as son in the creed. Okay, so do we got that with that addition? Can we say it with the only? Okay. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Excellent work. We had a really long stretch of readings for this week, taking us all the way from the end of the Torah, the beginning of the book of Joshua, through the book of Judges and the chaotic leadership there, all the way through Ruth, which barely got mentioned, all the way through 1 Samuel, which is when Israel gets their first king and the David-Saul drama really gets going, and then all the way culminating in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is where God makes a very extravagant promise to David that in fact he, or his, symbolically him, David, but really his line will be king forever. No conditions. I will never take the love away, God says. And this is an important moment I suggested because if Jesus later, it's a spoiler alert, Jesus will be said to be in David's line and a king. And so terms like king and Messiah or Mashiach in Hebrew or Christos in Greek will, will come to be very important terms in the New Testament, but they're not just important in a void. It's not just like, oh, I'm supposed to think of a king, like with a crown, yay, like I guess that makes sense to us, even though none of us have ever probably lived under a king, right? It's language specifically rooted in the Old Testament, in the experience of Israel with David, okay? And so we got to that point, and I tried to emphasize that those terms actually had meanings in the Bible, um, apart from just being abstract and so on. I've got two guests with me to help talk about this and many other issues, difficult issues today about, about violence, about the land, about all kinds of things, about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. First here on my left is a return guest. You know and love him from his previous appearance um, with us talking. Um, about many things. Dr. Javier Garcia, PhD from Cambridge, um, a dear friend of mine. So happy to have you back, Dr. Garcia. Thank you for having me back. All right. It's Twinsies Day with the sweaters a little bit. Men don't have a lot of sweater options. You know, it's like light gray, medium gray, darker blue. That's kind of what you get. <laughs> that's Northwest, though. Yeah, that's a Northwest thing. It's true. Um, our new guest for today, Dr. Tim Chahandarides. Um Now, Tim is a mentor to me in the College of Christian Studies. He's one of our professors of New Testament. Um, Dr. Chandrides has served in many different roles at the university. Back in ye olden days, before any of you were born, Dr. Chandrides was actually the soccer coach here. He was actually the campus pastor here at one point, and now he's uh, a professor in the College of Christian Studies. He has also, fun facts about, about Tim, he has also played on the, so any soccer fans here? Football, European football, soccer, whatever you call it. Um, Tim has played on the soccer pitch with Pele. Have you ever heard of Pele? Twice as a member of the Greek national team, which played, I guess, Pele's team. I don't know. Did you touch him while he was out there? I have a shirt. You got to talk to the mic. I have his shirt. You have his shirt? Right. The exchange after the game. You switched shirts with Pele? Yeah. He embarrassed me, so he gave me his shirt. What? I cannot believe that. That's amazing. Also, by the way, was, for a brief time, a place kicker in the National Football League with none other than the New England Patriots for a preseason game at least. How did that go? What happened? Not well. Oh. <laughs> I could kick, but I didn't like getting hit. So. And they, they wanted kickers the to get hit in those days? want to hurt you badly. Yeah. That was a different day in football, though. Right. They wanted to really hit people. Now it's yes. like the kickers just kind of run off the field. I tried that. They wouldn't let me. Oh, that's too bad. 
Um, Tim has also been a pastor, and, and we're, we're kind of bringing him in also in all these roles as our pastoral presence for today. So welcome to Javier. Welcome to Tim. Thank you so much. I wonder if I could ask you, um, Dr. Garcia, if I could start with you. When you think about seeing Jesus in the New Testament, we've gotten to the point in the creed where Jesus appears, and yet Jesus isn't there by name yet in the book. Do you see Jesus in the Old Testament as a Christian? Is that important? Is there a particular place where you think that's... I mean, I suggested, for example, Abraham and Isaac in the lecture on Monday. So take that one off the table. Is there another place where you see Jesus uh, in a particularly meaningful way in the Old Testament? Yes, actually, um, I find it very helpful to read the Old Testament um, in the light of Jesus. So with a lot of these protagonists that you read, there are ways of seeing them as shadows or um, types of Christ, right? So even when you're talking about Exodus, Moses, he is the lawgiver, right? So Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver. He does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He goes on a mount that's like, just like Moses, and he gives the law, right? Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he's standing up there, he's preaching, it's like he's using the law. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So he is the new Moses, yeah. right? Uh, a similar example is Job. You read the book of Job and you say, who is this innocent sufferer, right? right. This is a guy who suffers, um, all his friends hate him and mock him, uh, he's insulted, you're not really sure why he's, he's suffering, uh, and then suddenly Jesus comes on the scene and he has a very similar description. He's an innocent sufferer, hated by many people, um, and uh, maybe it's not the same argumentative uh, uh, format where the friends are telling sure. him reasons why he's wrong, but you have an in innocent sufferer who is eventually crucified, and you have the problem of evil being addressed, right, mm -hmm. at the cross. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is the new Job, and you could go all across the, the, the Hebrew Bible with similar um, types and, and analogies. Yeah, we'll get to Job. We've already had Moses. I like that, thinking about Moses and Jesus as a new Moses. W what about you, Tim? Are there any, do you have a favorite place that you really see Jesus in the Old Testament in that way? I agree with Javier that uh, in the book of Hebrews, all, this, all the structures of the religion of the Israelites, um, Jesus is greater than that. So you can see Christ in all those, the temple and the sacrifices and so on. One of the more sort of, um, my, my Greek background um, helps me to, to sort of imagine this. I see Jesus in the story of uh, Daniel. Daniel. Uh, in the fire furnace. You know, who is that presence mm. that is comforting them? There are three people, but there is a fourth presence. Could that be a theophany, an appearance? Could that be the trinity that people can experience God? Uh, you know, so these are the ways that I see a Christ in the Old Testament sometimes where the Israelites experience God's presence among them in a physical way, mm -hmm. in a very profound way, that it could be Jesus. I'm not saying he is, but it could be. Right. At, le at least there's a space there in the narrative right. for you to imagine, like, right. oh, there's something more here that we don't know exactly what it is yet. Right. But it's coming. And I see that in today, not only Jesus, but in the Holy Spirit, when I walk and I feel God's presence in my life. Mm. Uh, you know, what does that mean besides my own feeling? It could be something profound, spiritual presence. So I sort of think of those places like that. Christians often talk of an idea of, the, of a trinity. Have you, have you all heard this word before, a trinity? We haven't really addressed it in this class yet. I plan to kind of get there and sort of unveil this. I wonder, it's, it's not an easy topic just to, just to talk about quickly, but I wonder, you know, how, how in a pastoral sense would you talk to somebody about what is the trinity? Do Christians worship three gods? Of course not, and, and of course the, the creed talks about the one essence, homoousia, the Greek word. So to me, it's one God, it's presented in a variety of ways uh, to us. Um, 
we see him as the Father, we see him as the Son, as the Holy Spirit. And I think um, in any relationship, uh, we see um, my wife is my friend, my spouse, m the, the mother of my children. And, and so I see a variety of pres presence there. Um, she's a psychologist, so sometimes I think she's also my therapist. <laughs> and, and so when I, see, when I see people in relationships, my colleague, my boss right now, he's my department chair. So there's levels of relationships that I see. And I think more profoundly in the spiritual life, I see Christ, um, the, the God I worship, the son that I can historically experience because he walked on this earth, you know, growing up in Greece and, and, and visiting the places that Paul and Jesus went. The geographic theology is important to me. Some of you guys don't have that. Um, the presence of the Holy Spirit now, the Israelite story and, is and God of Israel. So I see that in a variety of ways. Just one more, one God. Yeah, one more follow-up on this. We talked about the part of the creed, the Father Almighty, a few weeks ago. And, and I think one thing we didn't get to that, that I wanted to talk about was this idea like, okay, Father, that's male imagery. We know that. Son, that's a male imagery, our creed, our creed section this week, his only son. So there's something unique then that the creed wants to say about Jesus. Is there a way with the imagery of the Holy Spirit in the traditions that you're familiar with where you could get feminine imagery in there for the Holy Spirit? Is it, could it be appropriate for Christians to see the Holy Spirit as a kind of a female you know, symbol? Or is, does that not work, do you think? I don't like to limit any part of the Trinity in symbolic language like that, male, female, or whatever. I believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can be seen um, in, in both genders, only because we're created in God's image, male and female. Mm -hmm. And so I see, I see that in a more broader way. Um, and so I think that the Holy Spirit is God's presence in our midst, uh, mm -hmm. not in a physical way. Uh, and he connects with us at whatever we are. So I don't know if I can do that. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. I shy uh, away from it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think um, so the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is referred to as the comforter. Right. So you might see maybe more of a nurturing uh, dynamic there in the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. And the Holy Spirit kind of working in our lives. So I, I would maybe I would stick a little closer to uh, the yeah to the, the specific gender of father and a son. But then I think the Holy Spirit um, definitely gives us a, a more creative approach to um, to understanding the Trinity and to a kind of how God interacts with us. But that's not to say that Jesus is not nurturing right. um, or the Father does not mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. qualities that are that are motherly in a way. Um, so especially in the Psalms, we see this type of language. Um, you know, though a mother and father will abandon you, God will take you in, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, or even, even uh, I forget where, where this is, what, what Psalm this is in, but even though a mother might abandon her children, God would never do that to you, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all this language emphasizing the motherly qualities of God, but not necessarily uh, giving a gender pronoun that's um, ambiguous, uh, actually uh, doubling down in some ways uh, on the maleness of, of the father, um, but still having that, right. that maternal element. So maybe that's a different approach to you, but <coughs> similar I, and end. The other thing is, and I'm not, I don't want to make a big thing of it at all, it's not, but the Greek word, to ayo pnevma, the Holy Spirit is a neuter noun. Ah. I don't know if that makes any difference, but mm -hmm. I just, you know, otheos, masculine, oios, masculine, to ayo pnevma, neuter. Right. So it could go either way. Mm -hmm. What about this language in the creed, though, of Jesus being God's only son? Like, shouldn't it, shouldn't it all be like, hey, look, we're all God's children? I mean, and that's even language in the New Testament, the idea that we're children of God or that we're friends of Jesus and so on. I mean, why designate Jesus as God's only son exactly? Like, what, Why can't there be siblings? Yeah, why can't there be some siblings? Yeah, Maybe yeah. I'm Jesus' brother. Maybe Jesus is the yeah, son. Yeah, yeah. Like, 
And let's be honest. I mean, a lot of only children, at least the people that I've met, this is no, <laughs> no insult to anybody <laughs> listening or anybody in the crowd. But, you know, it's kind of I have some particular only children friends, <laughs> you know, where it's like yeah. I have to be always adjusting. And I wish that uh, maybe if they had had a sibling, they would understand that, you know, that's you right. Gotta, it's a give and take. That's right. So um, that's right. I'm, so the, yeah, so I'm the oldest of five children. I don't know what that's like. But I mean, yeah, what, what about this? Yeah, yeah. What about this idea of the only son? Yeah, I mean, I think there is this sense of, of exclusivity with Jesus. Right. So uh, we have in the New Testament, Jesus claim, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Right. So that exclusive claim uh, is made easier by the fact that he's the only son. Right. So there's no competition. Um, but then you also have the kind of jealousy the father has for the son. Right. Just in the same way that you have in the Hebrew Bible, God's jealousy for Israel. Right. What is what does uh, Moses say? Uh, or actually, God say to Moses, he says, get my son. Right. Israel is my son. Israel right? is the son. Yes. And then with the Pharaoh, the ultimate plague is to kill the firstborn sons, right? So you have the son parallel. Oh yeah, that's very um, that's a very dark parallel. Yeah, 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 yeah. But just to say that this this um, notion of the son, and especially the only son, really gives a lot of uh, emphasis to who Jesus is um, in the in the Godhead. Mm -hmm. um, could I? Yeah, go for um, it. The virgin birth obviously affirms that. You know, mm -hmm. there's there that is there's only one virgin birth of the Holy Spirit. God Himself impregnated Mary, a human. So. All the, other, all, the, all the rest of us are human to human, so that's a divine influence on the birth of Jesus, and I think that's important. The other thing that I want to say to supplement what you're saying is in, in, Hebrew, in the book of Ephesians, um, uh, you know, in Colossians, Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body of Christ. There's only one head, and so God's only son can be the head of his church, and then we, God's sons, can be part of that community, part of that body. So I think I see the imagery in the life of the church in a profound way. But it is, there's no denying the fact that in, in the traditional language of the church, women are asked to kind of participate in male language at many points, you know, are asked to, to think in terms of being a son, you know, in that sense, which is weird, right? Like, why aren't men asked to think about being daughters, you know? In some translations, when the Bible says, sons in the in the new testament will actually just change it and say sons and daughters or children to be gender inclusive so you do get gender inclusive translations the niv 2011 which is our class bible actually has at points nods toward gender inclusive language not for god it doesn't change god's pronouns or anything like that but when paul is addressing you know when he says oh brothers you know this and that it'll say brothers and sisters you know, just to make it sort of clear, like in our time, what that meaning is. But this is an issue that that can be debated as well. I mean, I would I would add that historically, and you see this very prominently today, um, Christians have had a, a very high view of Mary. Uh, mm. Whether that is seeing her, um, you know, whatever theology you have of Mary, uh, whether she was um, another person but very humble and so a model for us to follow or uh, she is uh, sinless, you know, some, some traditions will go all the way uh, to the Immaculate Conception and, and different types of theologies, especially Roman Catholics. Right. Um, but either way, having Mary there helps to add uh, that maternal element to the faith. Um, and it's not necessarily tied to the Godhead, right? Right. Um, and so another way of thinking about it is the church as mother. So this is common in the Roman Catholic Church, but also among Protestants. So John Calvin will talk in the Institutes about uh, the church as a mother. John, John, Calvin John Calvin's a famous Protestant theologian. Yeah, a 16th century uh, reformer. And so he writes a law on the, on the church as mother. So not necessarily talking about the Roman Catholic Church, but... Um, 
the people who preach the gospel and believe in, in the Bible um, becomes a mother to new believers, right? Because you have to be nurtured by the teaching there. And so you can use that, that right. maternal metaphor for the right. church itself. So right. actually, I would push back and say, I have to adopt some uh, feminine uh, qualities as a Christian because I am the part of the bride of Christ. Right, the bride right? of Christ. And so that, that kind of becomes a little bit weird for me to say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm a bride. Christ is the bridegroom. I'm a part of the bride. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe in, in that way I can relate um, with, with women who would find it maybe a little uncomfortable to always see the sonship type sure. language in the Bible. When I, was, when I first became a Christian, I was in, re really when I first started coming to church, I was 19 years old um, and I was in college. And the college age kind of Bible study group I became a part of, the leader of that group was this very old, wise Christian. And at some points, or maybe it was just once, but I think it was more than once, he would, sometimes he would say to us like, we are the bride of Christ. I want everyone to close your eyes right now. Just imagine you're wearing a bridal dress. Everybody. Boys, girls, everybody. Bridal dress. And we would all sit there like imagining that. So I forgot about that until you mentioned this this example. Okay. I want to make a transition here because and we now we're all imagining you in a bridal now dress. Now we're all imagining me in a bridal dress. That's fine. That's fine. I'm fine with that. Just briefly on that. Um, one of the, Mike, things, one of the things that I think we need to be aware of is this. Um, when you translate some from one language to the other, uh, there's grammatical uh, nuances. For instance, um, man, anthropos, we, it's a masculine noun in Greek, but it doesn't mean men only. It means people generically. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about male husband, andra, male, it's andras as opposed to anthropos. Mm -hmm. So we have that word, the, the idea of brothers, brothers and sisters. In Greek, it's o adelphos. It includes everybody in the community. Mm -hmm. And so ecclesia, you talk about the bride of Christ, that's a feminine noun, just like a ship is a feminine noun. And so the, the imagery, because every noun in Greek has to have a gender, the imagery is you know, influenced by that gender, but it doesn't mean that's what it means to, to the hearing, to the person that hears it. Right. So 90% of the time in the Bible, it says men should not be by bread alone or other things like that. It's people. It includes men, women, old, young, slaves, free. And so right. it is a, a sort of a generic um, term. That's a great point. Um, I want to use this gender issue as a bridge into the Bible and into our Bible portions for this week, at least somewhere. Somebody texted and said, um, and by the way, all of you out there, if you have notes, um, questions on paper, if you want to pass those to the aisle, maybe Jenna can come down and grab those and start sorting through them and see if we've got any questions there. Um, I'll take one from text to get us into the book of Judges and some questions there about violence that we want to talk about, because this is a tough issue in the text we've read for this week, and I brought it up in the lecture, and we've got to, we've got to address it. Um, somebody was like, hey, Deborah, she's a woman, and she's a leader in the book of Judges. Is she a kind of a positive, strong female image as a foil to the violence done against women in that book? Yeah, I think that's a great exegetical point. I mean, that's a great way of looking at it, that you have different kinds of images, and you do have female leaders. They're rare. But in the song of Deborah in Judges 5, did, you, did we get to Judges 5 for this week? Hopefully we did. Um, Deborah, as part of her song, says, you know, Israel was in chaos until I arose. I, Deborah, a mother in Israel, she calls herself. So um, you have that strong image of Deborah, and she is there, and she is a legitimate leader of Israel in that time. But this issue of violence, man, you know, this is a tough one. There are two, there are two kinds of ways of thinking about violence in the Bible, and I want to pitch this out to the panelists on these terms. In one sense, we can say, yes, we read the Bible, you read Joshua, you read Judges, you read Samuel. Some of the violence in Judges, for example, you might just read it and think, okay, these are just fallen, horrible people doing fallen, horrible things. Judges 19 and 20, those stories with the woman, did you get to that story at the end, the Levite's concubine and how she's 
you know, just a horrible story, just horrific. The very worst of what humanity would have to offer. But you can look at that and you can say, where was God in a story like that? Nowhere, exactly. And that's the point at the end of Judges. Everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. And that's one thing. So it's, you can read the violence and you can be like grossed out by it or hate it or be entertained by it as the case may be, like in movies. But you don't have to see God as being involved, okay? And that's true for some stories of violence. However, there's some stories of violence where God seems involved. Indeed, not just involved like sitting on the sideline watching, but actively involved, like even commanding it. Like, for example, the eradication of the Canaanite native population. Now, this eradication is, is predicated on something for God, namely the idea that Israel is to inherit the land and maybe there's something wrong with these Canaanites. Their iniquity is reaching a kind of a, a capacity that God can no longer bear and now he wants to wipe them out. But even David, I mean, David does a lot of, of grisly things, a lot of murders. If, if I had you read all of First and Second Samuel, you would see David in a lot more murdering roles than you've seen him in so far even, where it's like you start to wonder, if this is a man after God's own heart, is God like a ruthless killer politician military leader? Like, is that, is that how we're supposed to think of God? So it's not so easy. We can't just get off the hook like that as readers of the Bible and as Christians, and this is a serious issue, this issue of violence in the text. I mean, I could pitch it to our panelists on a broad level, or maybe you could pick up a specific story, but I mean, violence. What do you do with this as a person of faith? Does this not haunt you in some way? <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. Um, so when I think of this problem, I think a lot of Genesis, because Genesis uh, is a story where humanity seems so embroiled in sin, right? You have the creation and then fall, and then a kind of multiplication of sin. Uh, you have Cain and Abel, like right out of the gate. Murder. Murder. Um, you have Lamech, who's kind of, you know, not mentioned very much, but he, he right after Cain and Abel, there's a lot of, of killing. Uh, then why does uh, God send Noah? Because things have gotten so bad. I mean, go back to Genesis, what is it, Genesis 6, um, where it says their minds were thinking evil continually, right? And so, um, so then you have the flood, but then after the flood, it happens again, right? Um, and God has made a promise, a covenant, not to uh, destroy uh, the world or, you know, uh, cause this flood again. Um, and so he kind of lets things keep going, but he's the king of the nation, right? And so there's sin, there's still problems, especially in Judges, you see how, how this climaxes again. Um, and you guys have been talking about um, First and Second Samuel, right? Where uh, the people of Israel demand a king and God allows that to happen. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so, so at least with Genesis, you see that violence, God's violence in a way you could say, is tied to justice, right? It's tied to his understanding of justice uh, which in some ways I, I think is, is very difficult for us to understand, but maybe one way to understand it is, um, you know, God is in, a, in a, an arena of different competing gods, right? Like in Exodus, um, part of the plagues is that God is establishing his power over uh, these kind of false gods that other civilizations have. And maybe you could say in the same way in, um, in Joshua, God is a, he's a conqueror, he's conquesting land. That, mm -hmm. as you said, I mean, this is this is a very a very good parallel to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where God enacts uh, a certain act of violence because things have gotten so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, and possibly that's that's the reason also uh, for the the Canaanite um, conquest. Yeah. W what do you think about this this topic, Tim? <laughs> well, 
couple of things. Number one, when I read the Old Testament story, I am grateful for the Israelites for not hiding their negative parts, so we see them the way they are. And to me, that's an encouragement, number one, to see that they struggled with issues and did not hide them. If I were to meet you and establish a relationship with you, you will not hear anything about my bad part of my background until way later in the story. <laughs> and so I respect the fact that God's people wrote everything good or bad about them, number one. Number two, um, I, I think that um, when we talk about salvation, you can think in terms of um, violence in this way. The old self is gone, it's dead. There's a new creature in Christ. What does that mean? Everything about me that's old is buried, gone, destroyed. There's a new creature in Christ. So the whole idea that God's um, kingdom, God's people, uh, God's way of doing things, God's calling us has to do with his profound change from old to new self. And when you bury the old self, that it may imply violence as well. I also am influenced by my Greek Orthodox tradition, and even though I'm not Greek Orthodox, my Greek culture, because if you look at Greek Orthodox um, saints, the difference between the sainthood between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church is this. In the Roman Catholic Church, a saint has to have sort of some sort of a miraculous event during the lifetime or after, and then the Pope uh, will declare her. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, a saint is one who dies defending their faith. So most icons in the Orthodox tradition of old had a, a, a person holding the cross and a sword. More modern saints, cross and a gun. So the idea of you know, you as a saint, as a, as, a, as a saint, are martyred for the faith implies this idea that something that is anti-faith in that, you know, that part of Christianity must be destroyed. And it is God's way of saying, you faithful people that are going to be honored in heaven will destroy that. So I don't know if that helps at all in the conversation. but Yeah, well, I would also add that violence is included not only in the, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament right. in the sense that Jesus, there, you, you don't, you can't tell the story of Jesus without violence, That's right? True. He's tortured and killed on the cross, which is like the worst way to die, right? And so, and if you really meditate on the passion of Christ, I mean, it is bloody, it is violent, right? And so, however you interpret that, whether it is God doing violence to his own son, or whether it is humanity doing violence to the son of God, um, even at this point in the creed, we're kind of, you know, uh, maybe prefacing what's going to happen later in the creed, right? right? That he uh, he is uh, crucified, dead, and buried, right? And so that violence is done to Jesus. So I'm just trying to bring it full circle, uh, both Old Testament and New, especially with Christ. And one other thing about violence, violence is not only physical. It's spiritual, it's emotional. Uh, it's controlling, um, you know, people to people, gender control, ethnicity control, um, and so on. So I think that violence is a way of God, God freeing us from those systems that we may have created. Look at Jesus confronting the Pharisees. In some ways, in a, in a, in a, in a, in, it could be violent way, emotional violence, you know, calling them names or whatever. So I think that uh, we need to understand the idea that God's way of what he wants us is pure, right, holy, righteous. And, and, and the justice of God is balanced with God's mercy. And God's mercy can reach the depths of despair, but God's justice is firm. And so sometimes mm. we need to understand uh, yeah. that in that. Someone was texting about that kind of polarity. Like if we see Jesus and there's this theme of forgiveness, but we have this theme of judgment too. Like how do you hold those two things together? It's true. Like this is one of the dualities in Christian thought that God embodies and enacts on earth, justice and also mercy. Um, but those two things go together um, in the Bible. Um, let's go to the class here. Jenna, do you have a, 
uh, a comment from the, the gallery here. Yeah, it kind of goes along with what you guys have been touching on. Uh, one person said, Christians believe Jesus and God are the same, but the God we're reading about in the Old Testament seems very different than Jesus. How do we reconcile these parts of the Trinity? How can Jesus abolish the law if God made the law? And furthermore, another student said, how do you reconcile the New Testament picture of God is love to the often violent, angry, and indecisive seeming way of God presented in the Old Testament? Yeah, so I'll flip this out to the panelists. Very difficult and good questions. I, I, I want to amplify and echo something Dr. Gar Dr. Garcia said uh, on the terms of the New Testament. We'll get to reading the New Testament later in the course, but I, let there not be any confusion. I mean, when you, you're going to have to really read it and think about this. The New Testament is not devoid of divine violence. Not only do you have at its center piece, theologically, the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is an act of immense violence that God either directs or allows. Christians have different ways of talking about why Jesus is crucified and the meaning of that. We'll get to that. But it's at least something that God sees and uses, okay, I mean, at bare minimum. But it's also the case that in the book of Acts, um, a book we'll get to, I don't even know if we'll end up reading this part, it's just a small story, but there are two people named Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts who lie about how much money they've given to their church, and God kills them on the spot. Boom, dead. There's also this book, plot spoiler, at the end called Revelation, where Jesus returns to the earth, the same Jesus, apparently, who preached, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and all these wonderful messages, and has a sword coming out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood to slay the nations, okay, and the people who have rejected him. So that's a tough message. Revelation is a really different kind of book. It has a lot of symbolism. Uh, you know, it can't just be dealt with simplistically or lightly, but... Those are images of divine violence in the New Testament. And by the way, in the Old Testament, we have massive images of God's forgiveness and love dating all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain is not killed or given the death penalty for killing his brother, which seems horrible. Shouldn't justice demand? No, God gives him a mark and, in fact, protects him. God protects Adam and Eve with the, the, you know, the, the skin clothing that he then clothes them with after their shame. And so there's already a pattern set up of forgiveness right away in the Bible um, because the images of violence are so difficult, I understand why it's easy to be like, Old Testament God, mean. And then he had a son, and then he kind of mellowed out. Like, ah, I've got kids now. I can't be doing this kind of, you know, I can't be slaying the nations with my son watching. You know, it's not quite like that. I think that that's, I understand why, why, why you would ask it that way, but I think that that's an unfair characterization of God, both in the Old Testament and it's not harsh enough for the God in the New Testament. So maybe the gap here isn't as big as that question makes it seem. I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, for sure. Did you want to... I, I don't think the gap is as big as the question makes it to be or the way we suggest it. Um, because for every story, I like to... Every story that I... Look at Jephthah and his daughter. Or many stories like that in the book of Judges that are negative and violent and so on. I like to put God's justice and God's mercy next to each other and see the story with both, both lenses. And when I see the, the story with both lenses, I see God's justice means sin is serious enough. God hates sin, and God recognizes that's destructive in the way that he created us to redeem us back to himself. But God also sees that sin separated us so profoundly that we cannot come back to him on our own. So his love reaches down to find us where we are, and in the process there can be some destruction. So I see every violent story, every story in the Old Testament as good justice and mercy at work together. So the flood... Destruction of the earth, justice, Noah accepting that, 
God's love to preserve the good and give it back to us. So I, I like to see them together as opposed to that part part. And if you want to give up in your life, I was just talking to some students about this last night. This is a tough issue. If you want to just say, look, it's all about, it's just about mercy. Like, look, this justice thing, it's horrible. It's too much. We don't want justice, okay? Justice, the price you pay for justice is too ugly. Be careful if you say that because you might be giving up a tool that you need to actually help weak people who are being hurt. You don't want to give that up. You don't want God to give that up, probably, right? There, there are vulnerable people in the world who need immense power to free them. It's not cheap. It's ugly, true, but that's, you, 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 you may be cautious about wanting to give up on that aspect, uh, either of yourself in society or of God, and, and what violence actually accomplishes at times for justice. Yeah, I would also add, maybe to put this very sharply, if you reject the Old Testament, you cannot be a Christian. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah, and it's theologically true. I yeah, mean, so, you know, in the early church, there was this guy called Marcion who was reading um, the Old Testament, and he said, yeah, this is a different God to Jesus, right? And so then there are two, there are two gods that he pits against, pits against each other. There's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Let's get rid of the Old Testament. Also, let's get rid of a lot of the Semitic Hebrew elements in the New Testament because that's just like the old God creeping in. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you could get like three pages of the New Testament that you get to keep uh, because there's so much uh, uh, Hebrew Bible coming in, especially in Jesus' own words. So I just want to sharpen um, the kind of risk. Like, what are your options here, right? Well, one option is you can get rid of the Old Testament, but at that point you just like walk away from the Christian faith altogether. Um, so we need to reconcile these two things. Um, and, you know, this is a, a, a very classic question that people have because just reading the text, um, you know, it, it is, is quite uh, shocking in some ways what, what we read in, in the Old Testament. But I would say mercy is very strong in the Old Testament as well. How does God reveal himself to Moses, right? This is Moses uh, in Exodus 34, right? Um, Moses asks God to reveal himself to him. And then God says, okay, uh, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to show you my glory. Uh, because if you're not in the cleft of the rock, like my glory might be too intense for you. And I'm going to show you my back because you might be able to deal with that. Because if I show you my face, you're going to die. Okay, so I'm going to be nice to you and I'm, I'm going to reveal my glory to you. And then what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who will by no means clear the wicked. Right. <laughs> so there is a way in which uh, if you go back to that passage in Exodus uh, 34, you will see that there is so much mercy emphasized and then God's justice is brought in. But if you even look at, at the generations to which God will be merciful there, they are more than the generations to which God will show justice to, if that makes sense. So his mercy right. um, wins over his justice. And, and we see this even in James. Right. James says mercy wins over over justice not to say that they're pitted against each other but there's a certain sense in which even in the old testament lest we forget god shows himself as a merciful god and the people appreciate that what what do the uh the what does the psalmist say he says some trust in chariots some in horses but we trust in the name of the lord right so that is both taking uh the justice of god and his and his kind of warrior element but also the mercy of God. Like, you want this guy on your side. Right. Professor Chandridis, we're, we're ending, we're, we're in the last minute or so of our time here. Um, 
Do you have a final statement on this? What, how would you encourage the students to keep reading the Old Testament and seeing a God of grace and love there, just br very briefly? I think that if you want to understand Jesus, um, the Old Testament gives you a glimpse of who he is, his story, his people, um, uh, he, where he comes from, and how God prepared the Israelites for the King of Kings. And we cannot understand the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, without understanding what God established for them and what they anticipated and how those two things were different along the way, but somehow God put it together. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's necessary to see the whole picture of our faith. We need to keep reading to watch that mystery unfold as we go forward this semester. Please join me in thanking these panelists for this great discussion.